Uh, Let us pray. Loving God, grant us now that most excellent gift of your Holy Spirit that in your light we might see light and in your truth find freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed that inside of many churches, including this one, especially in the sanctuary of the building, uh, you can't see outside uh, the wider world out there? Uh, Through the beauty of stained glass and clever architecture, uh, sitting in church in here can cut you off from the world out there. Uh, Some of us come here for precisely that reason. Um, We like a little peace and quiet. Uh, We're glad that in here is protected from out there. Uh, The naves of our churches, this place where we sit, are, are sort of oases from the turmoil and trouble and this week the violence of the wider world. Uh, Some churches I visit have printed right in their bulletin a line like, please be be quiet during the prelude as a time of prayer and meditation, right? If I can paraphrase what people are after with that phrase, what they mean is, could you please knock it off for just like 10 minutes so I can get some peace and quiet? Uh, The place where worship takes place, this area of the church we call The sanctuary, right? It's an ordered place, a safe place, a a place of reverence and quiet and beauty. I looked up the word sanctuary in the dictionary just recently, and it says this. A sanctuary is a protected area where wildlife is safe from predators. (laughs) I mean, do, do you ever feel that this space does that for you? You know, here with your cell phone turned off or at least on stun, uh, vibrate. (laughs) On your day away from the office or from work, you're safe from predators, right? Uh, Predators that want to eat up your time and your psychic balance and and, and your peace of mind. Uh, Worship can be a place of repose. It's sanctuary and frankly, sometimes it does save us from extinction. I mean, and look at how we do things in worship. I'm a Presbyterian, uh, and for Presbyterians, the most important verse in the whole of the Bible is, do everything decently and in order, right? Uh, the, the, The most carefully planned and orchestrated event of the week is worship. Everything we do here is designed to induce peace and harmony. The order of the service is printed in the bulletin just like last week and will be reliably followed. The pews in here are bolted to the floor. The the furniture is steadfast and immovable. And very often churches look like fortresses just in case people think change is possible, right? Um, And then there's the pulpit up here six feet above contradiction. These are the bulwarks and bunkers we build against the intrusion of chaos and conflict and turmoil and upset and trouble and change. I remember a parishioner once coming to me and saying, you know, I wish I could come to church every day. I need the order and structure that church gives my life, my fragmented life. It tends to wear off about uh, Wednesday. Hmm. The meeting of the saints is organized and graceful and structured. It points toward the world as one day it shall be when we'll all be caught up in the endless worship of God, when heaven and earth will be made over again, when tears will be wiped away from every eye, when justice and peace will embrace, when swords will be beat into plowshares from this time forth and yea, forevermore, amen. And then... Then somebody's cell phone rings in church. 
Then a baby cries out, and then the, the city workers decide this would be a good time to plow or to punch a hole through the pavement. Uh, and then someone needs medical attention, right? And, and somebody walks in off the street and comes unnervingly close to the front. And, and we get thrown off our measured solemnity, don't we, into the controlled, rehearsed world of church. The outside world intrudes. I still remember a wedding rehearsal on a Saturday. Uh, the bride and the father walking arm in arm down the center aisle of the church at the rehearsal, and his cell phone rang, and he stopped, and he answered it. Uh, I said, uh, I hope this doesn't happen tomorrow. His daughter was less diplomatic um, than that. <laughs> Despite the most careful planning of the clergy, the most rehearse preparations of church musicians, things go awry, glitches occur, interruptions take place, in of all places, church. Predators seem to hunt in the sanctuary. And if I can just press a little further, chaos comes with each of us into church. You see, the reason sanctuary is hard to find isn't just because the outside world intrudes by light and sound and cordless connection. Uh, let's face it, all of us come to church dragging our demons with us. And the peace and quiet of church oftentimes provides just the right opportunity for those demons to speak up. I mean, th think of nighttime, right, when everything's quiet and serene and and then it all bubbles up to the surface, doesn't it? It's quiet and still outside, but inside it can be a witch's brew. Uh, many of us have a restlessness that even a new mattress is not going to solve, right? Church worship can be like that. The quiet conjures up the demons we brought with us into the quiet of worship where you've got to face who you are and, and what you're becoming. The stillness of heart and mind bring us face to face with trouble and turmoil in us. And the avoidance that we sometimes practice, we modern people, gets cracked open when we sit in church. The restlessness we feel sometimes in church about keeping it all on the beam, filling in the gaps with music, that can be our reluctance to face the quiet and who we are and what our lives have become. I've noticed that church can be a place where worry and addiction, sadness and indifference, grief, and regret, fear, violence, and justice, and all sorts of other demons get busy in the world inside our head, right here in church. The ordered world of church, especially its silence, almost provokes a confrontation with chaos. Chaos gets to us in church. Demons have our name. From our reading in the Gospel of Mark, and then they, Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and he taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as someone who had authority. Jesus gives his very first sermon in the Gospel of Mark. He and his disciples go to church, and Jesus is asked to provide some commentary on the lessons for the day. Uh, Jesus appears in Mark as a rabbi, a teacher, doing what teachers do. In the world of the synagogue, it was ordered and structured like church. It was a routine they went through. There was prayer and praise to God. 
Uh, one commentator on this passage says the synagogue services were not wholly unlike Anglican morning and evening prayer. I noticed that the commentator is an Anglican. Um, well, but this day Jesus is the preacher. And it goes so well. I mean, the crowd is astonished. And, and they're astonished not so much, much at what he taught, but at how he taught it. He teaches with authority. Unlike other teachers, including this one, who just used a quotation from someone else because I was too uh, timid to try to make the point on its own strength, uh, Jesus doesn't use footnotes. What he says rests on the fact that he says it. He speaks, and the strength of his words rests solely on the fact that it's Jesus speaking them. Jesus' words do things to people who hear them. He says it, and it cuts right through. He speaks, and his words leave a cruciform mark on your life. His words sear and heal and touch. It's like listening to Jesus. Your life gets all permeable. There's no defense against his words. They, they expose your need even as they meet it. It's... It's frightening and life-giving listening to this teacher who comes from God. His words pack a punch. It's, it's like the time later in Mark's gospel when Jesus says to a storm, peace, be still. And Mark says, and the wind ceased. He, he teaches with authority. He does what he wishes with words. And what he wishes is the good of the people to whom he speaks them. What a great synagogue service this is. Well, and then the cell phone rings. Predators come into the sanctuary. A raving man stands up and howls menacing threats at the preacher. I've had that happen. It's unnerving. It seems to me the guy was there the whole time. He came to church with his demons in tow, and, and Jesus' astonishing, powerful teaching provoked his demons. I mean, imagine coming to church looking for some sweet peace and quiet and getting your demons provoked. Uh, Jesus just won't leave well enough alone. Uh, maybe sometimes he speaks peace to storms, but this time Jesus' words stir up a storm. I mean, I don't know what Jesus said to this guy to set him off. Based on my experience, it must have been a sermon about, I don't know, ethical investment or money. Um, <laughs> maybe Jesus says, you know, there's no self-made people. If you're going to come into the kingdom, you've got to come as a child. Self-made people don't like that one either. But I do know Jesus is really big on getting into the grill, getting into the face of demons that hitchhike into church. Jesus has a way of getting into everything. In an adult Bible study I teach, a woman said, you know, all this stuff in the Gospels, I don't get the feeling that Jesus was, I don't know, nice. <laughs> it made me think of that line in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy asks about the Christ figure Aslan. She says, is he safe? Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's, he's good. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? The sense here is that the power that holds this man's life and the grip of chaos is saying, hey, Jesus, uh, why are you interfering with us? 
What, what does Jesus of Nazareth have to do anyhow with how I spend my money, my time, my life? Why are you getting into my personal life, Jesus? What do you mean to get up all in the face of greed and consumption that knows no end? Who do you think you are to drag your religious convictions into my personal life? Do you get the point here? It's uh, Jesus, back off. I think that's why the serenity of church gets interrupted. Something about the living Jesus. Uh, he just keeps getting into everything, matters personal and economic. And the demons who are used to having their sway in our lives and in our world, they get nervous. As I read the Gospels, demons kind of ramp up their program in the Gospels with the coming of Jesus Christ. He's about to crack things wide open. Jesus is here to take back what belongs to God. I love those lines from the poem you've heard by Leonard Cohen, Anthem, ring the bells that still will ring, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. One of the delightful features of this passage is that the demons have Jesus' name. See, in the ancient world, if you had somebody's name, it meant you had power over them. In our story, while the demons have Jesus' name, he has power over the demons. That's, that's Mark's way, way of telling us this is not just anybody. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Holy One from God, and his teaching packs a wallop. He's come to set things right with the world. He's taking back what belongs to God, even if it kills him. He does things with words because he is the word. You know, you listen to this passage like, or other passages like this, and it can make you think that coming to church and listening to Jesus is a kind of brave thing to do. I think it was the American writer, Pulitzer Prize winner, Annie Dillard, who said, you know, we hand out bulletins at the door for church. The way I read the Bible, we should be giving people crash helmets. <laughs> The demons of greed and lust, of self-sufficiency and pride and sloth and envy and hopelessness and violence ask, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus says, shut up and come out of him. I think that means yes, I, I have. <laughs> God exercises, through Jesus Christ, exercises the liberating power of love to those whose lives are caught in chaotic forces. Jesus does things with words just like the creator who said, let there be light and there was light. Jesus does this with people's lives who are held by chaos. The light comes up, the chaos is beat back and convulsing and crying with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. Now, I know you're all sophisticated people. You know, this is like 2018, but... But we have all come here this morning with our demons in tow. None of us is free from the threat of chaos. We're worried. We're overwrought. W.H. Autumn says we live in the age of overwhelming. Some of us are grief-stricken. We're sad. We're about to give up, uh, give in, settle too soon for too little. We're disappointed. Maybe we're lonely or we have grief that just won't leave us alone. Uh, chaos lays its clutches on a sanctuary, free from predators, is hard to find. A number of years ago, I was the guest preacher at a, another United Church in Calgary. 
And the sermon was one of those dialogue sermons, you know, the t- where the minister and I sat on the platform. And the text for the day included the story of St. Paul's conversion from the book of Acts, you know, the lights and the voice and Paul, Saul becomes Paul. Well, the minister of that congregation kind of was baiting me, and he said in front of everyone with just he and I on the platform, hey, Richard, you're a theologian. What do you make of all this, like, conversion stuff? I mean, we're mainline Christians. Aren't we kind of against that? Well, I stuttered a bit at the question, and then I gave an answer for my favorite theologian, Bob Dylan, (laughs) who said, you know, you got to serve somebody. You might be the king of England or France, you might like to gamble, you might like to dance, but you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And he said, yeah, thanks. (laughs) And I said, you know, it's not a matter of whether you're converted, it's a matter of whether what you're converted to is worth your life. And then Robert Robert came to the microphone. Robert wore a T-shirt. It was a little too short to cover his stomach. He looked unkept, went to the pulpit, and started to read deadpan from a half sheet of paper, yellow, lines turned sideways. He said, I used to live on the street. I was violent. My brother and I used to roll people. And then I stumbled into this church's coffee shop. The people there were kind to me. They helped me and my brother. They helped me kick drugs, manage alcohol. He says, it took a while. It wasn't easy for them. I disappointed them all the time. He said, now I live in a house. I have a dog. I'm engaged to be married. I guess God helped me. That's all I got to say. St. Mark says, and they were all amazed so that they question themselves, saying, what what is this, a new teaching? I mean, with authority, he commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, light shining in the darkness, have mercy on our tired and doubting hearts. Renew us in the courage we need to bring to completion the work your calling has begun in us, and in this world that you so love. Amen.